Joshua, so if you're a newcomer, you've kind of landed right at the end of us traipsing through uh, what is called sometimes the conquest of the land that God had promised 600 years before Joshua chapter 24, and it's finally come about under the leadership of Joshua. So we are going to take a look at uh, chapter 24 and read that together and then consider it for a few moments together this morning. So here's Joshua chapter 24. Uh, and to, what I'm going to do today is a little bit different. Typically I'll read the whole text. These are long narratives and then go back. But what we'll do is read a portion of the text and I'll make some comments and then we'll move forward. So this is the first 13 verses in Joshua chapter 24. And here's what we read. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Sarah to Esau, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the desert for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again. I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, and as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings, you did not know, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. That's the word of God. So last week we talked about this speech of Joshua, really he's given a few kind of parting speeches and he had a lot of relational capital that had been built up. He's taken this group of people who are wandering for 40 years in the desert making no progress whatsoever and then finally with the promises of God and following what God has told them to do, they've made incredible progress so that we saw last week there's rest in the land and Joshua has fought the good fight quite literally 
to the end of his life, as we'll see. In fact, this passage ends with the faithfulness of that generation. This generation was faithful all the days, those people who'd been led by Joshua. And that's our goal, that's our aim, that's our target. And so when Joshua collects all of these leaders together, because of that history, they're going to listen to every word that he says, and it's going to have a certain weightiness attached to it. So we started seeing some of the... One of the final speeches he gave, well, this is the final, final speech, the last words that he is imparting to them, final words from a faithful servant. And this whole series has been called Faithful on the Journey. We see we are called to be faithful on the journey God has set before us right from the beginning. Don't depart from the book of the law, but walk in the ways God has set. And yet God's faithfulness is always greater. It is always Greater, And that has been true from the beginning. And this is a, a message that we see woven throughout the entire scriptures. God's faithfulness is certain and is sure, even against the backdrop of a people who are sometimes faithless. This ends with a note of faithfulness, but just give it a generation and everybody's doing what is right in his or her own eyes. And yet God is still faithful. Sometimes that faithfulness is difficult to swallow because God says, if you do this, there are blessings that come your way. And if you do this, there will be hardships and difficulties. And because he's faithful as his character, even those hard things he'll mete out. When we break that covenant with him, there's a lot of language of covenant and agreement. Just as we've discussed before, think about a husband and wife relationship and vows that you're committing. And when those are broken, how that relationship is broken as well. And this is God's vision of his people. I'm in a covenant relationship with you. And as you are faithful to that covenant, there will be these things that come along that I am faithful to distribute. And as you're not, I'll be faithful in that respect as well. And that's the design of the book of Joshua all the way to the end. This encouragement to be faithful. And we've seen a couple of instances where the people weren't. And yet God's faithfulness, his goodness, his pursuing of them to that point never changes. And so let me suggest to you, even in these first 13 verses, that God's grace, that is his undeserved favor that is given to his people over many years has sustained and delivered them to this point. He's giving a story here, Joshua, it's like a family history. And I I don't know if you have, uh, you know, family histories that, that you sometimes discuss and you say, hey, remember when grandfather did this or whatever, you know, some of you know that my grandfather who's 100 years old is just stopped driving about a year ago. And, you know, he, he was a POW in World War II, and I'll get to see him in, in just about a, a week, actually. I'll, I'll get to see him. He's in, he's in Portland, Oregon. And my mom's been doing some kind of chronicling, trying to get stories of the family history. And I have an interest in that. You might be mildly interested in hearing about my, my grandfather, but I'm really interested because that's, that's, my, that's my grandfather. That's my history And for those of you who have embraced faith in Christ, if you've been grafted into Israel, and I know that's very religious language, but it simply means that you're a part of the family of God, this is your history too. So it's like we're gathered together around the fireplace, and Joshua is saying, I'm going to take you back to the beginning. 
And it has relevance for their contemporary context because it shows that God has gone before them over a long period of time, 600 years later when they're there, and he's been faithful every step of the way. He has pursued you as a people even when you did not deserve to be pursued. And that's what grace is all about. Over many, many years, God's grace has sustained them in moments when it seemed like they'd be snuffed out. He was still at work. We were singing that, even though I can't see you, you're still working. I can't, I can't feel you, you know. I mean, faith is not just a, an experiential sort of touchy-feely thing. It certainly involves our emotions. But even when I can't feel you, you're still working. That's a statement of faith and of God's grace sustaining his people and delivering them to the point where you are right now. I know there are stories of grace because you're here breathing today. That is God's grace, that he has sustained you. Beautiful language in the book of Romans, too, about God's sustaining grace. You're not just called by grace, that is saved by grace. Again, spiritual language to say your heart's been renewed by God and you're alive to the things of God. But he sustained you. Here you are today. And when you read these words, if you're a child of God, this is your history, too. Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. This father Abraham, which many other faiths claim as well, as, as a father to them, he did nothing to deserve God calling him. God pursued him and called him while he was worshipping gods that really are no gods at all. Long ago, in your family history, the reason that you're sitting in this chair today and maybe have the name of Christ on your lips is because your spiritual forefather Abraham who was worshiping other gods was called by the God who spoke the world into existence and said I'm calling you and I'm going to build a nation out of you you don't deserve it but I'm going to invest in you and I'm going to just sit back and watch over history me unfold my plan of grace and redemption. I'm going to pursue you and I'm going to call a, a people who actually don't deserve to be in this relationship. They haven't done anything, but that's part of why I'm pursuing them, to show I'm a God who works in people in ways you would not expect. And so this story, as we have read it, and you, 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 you kind of get that if you're looking at these things, not just long ago, this is what I did with Abraham, but what God does along the way. I sent Moses. I afflicted the Egyptians. I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I brought you to the land. I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you. I delivered you out of his hand. I gave them into your hands. I gave you a land. God has been pursuing and sustaining them every step of the way along their journey. So this is like a story of grace that we get to not only read about, but say, I'm a part of that. If I've been grafted in, if I'm part of this narrative, this is your story, this is your family history. So see that God's grace, even if you can't see it now, over many years has sustained and delivered them, but also you. To this point, this day, right where you are. And like the Bible does so many times, you'll need to remember that for the week ahead when you feel like you've been abandoned by God. 
Or maybe his grace is not as measurable or, or calculated. It's rooted in history. I was reading the story of a, a lady who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea. And she had labored for, for years among these people and, and finally had translated some of the language. And this person who was kind of her adoptive father was not convinced of everything. And then he came across a, a genealogy. And, uh, and he was, she was translating it, and she, he said, what's this? And she's like, it's just boring stuff, you know, names and that kind of thing, too. And he said, no, no, what, what is this? Are these real people? Yes. He said, this is, this is actually a documented history. There's real people who, who were responsible and part of this. And she said, yeah. And he said, oh, well, then I, I guess it's true. For some reason, for him, seeing it historically based with names, because they believe that the banana created them before with no names. And now there's a genealogy, there's a history. It's grounded and rooted in something that is, that is factual. And so we snore sometimes at the genealogies and say, let's get to the good stuff. But there's a group of people for whom that shows it's actually true. It's rooted in history. This is not make-believe. The God of history entered in grace, pursued his people, sustained and delivered them to this point. And so, if that's the case, Joshua says, if you get why you're here by God's grace alone, what's the proper response to that? And he goes on to say what you should do about it. And this is in the next verses, verses 14 through 18. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. I mean, this is, this is such a great contrast. He says, here's God who's pursued and sustained and delivered you. And you're going to have to make a choice at some point. Are you going to serve that God? Or are you going to serve other gods? And part of what Joshua's showing them is it's really no choice at all. What have these other gods done for you? What have they done for you lately? You know? And we read that in Psalm 115. When you craft an idol, it has ears that can't hear. You know, you, you, you make the lips that can't speak. But this is the God who fashioned absolutely everything, the maker of heaven and earth. So you've got to choose. Are you going to serve that God or these gods? The God that your forefathers served, that I delivered out of you, uh, for you from. Throw away those gods that were worshipped, and serve the Lord. And the root for serving in, in chapter 24 is used 18 times. This is all about who are you going to serve? If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, and he's kind of like, you know, if he hasn't shown that he's uh, good enough, then why don't you go ahead and choose for yourselves whom you're going to serve? Try out some of these other false gods. I mean, it's a little bit, although not entirely the same, but I think I've mentioned Pascal's wager not that long ago, you know, Blaise Pascal, a mathematician who, who basically said, look, here's, here's the wager. He's talking to people who maybe aren't convinced that it's worth following God, so to speak. And in summary, he said, if you live as if there is a God who gives you structure and, and order and, and assurance, and you die and you find out there isn't, what have you really lost? Right? But... If you live as if there isn't a God and you do whatever you want or you're serving false gods and you die and you find out there really was one, you got serious problems. So you might as well wager and bet, as it were, on God. 
And Joshua's not using the exact same logic, but it's in the same ballpark, right? Here's a God who has sustained, delivered you. You get to choose. You can serve that God or these. Choose for yourselves this day whom you serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. And then he draws a line in the sand and he says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I mean, there's this kind of corporate sense of things too, this, this family decision as it were. We, we live in a culture that's pretty individual, Americans anyway. It's all about me and my privacy and my property and my choice and my autonomy and the biblical culture had a, a little bit more of a corporate view even to the family as well as for me in my house this is who we're going to serve and kids don't really get to decide about it and so when they go forward they're they're structuring their families speaking remember Deuteronomy and the Shema I'm going to train you in the ways of God in everything that we do and yeah you can probably reject this at some point there is a time when you draw that line in the sand and say what about you but when you're in my house I'm going to talk about God's grace I'm going to demonstrate it by the way that I I live and the way I respond to the frustrations and challenges of life and to the failures that I see in myself as well I mean, a big part, I think, of being faithful to what God's called us to do is how do we respond even in our own sin as kids are watching and learning and taking note. And if your response to your own sin is a poor response, then be honest about that. It's for me and I, my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And they realize, they say it was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey among all the nations through which we traveled. This is why I think stories of grace are important because we get to hear and remind ourselves of what God has done, even way, way back sometimes. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And so just as God's grace has sustained and delivered them, we see that God's grace, what he has done, motivates. It motivates them toward obedience and actually has a claim on our obedience. God's grace, what he has done for us, becomes a motivation for us to respond in kind. That's just a piece of it. I mean, there's, 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 there's another part of this. This idea of fearing the Lord and serving him certainly has wrapped in it a claim on us as well. We respect and revere and honor God because of what he has done. And so sometimes, you know, there's this kind of tension at times between God's grace being the sole motivator for us to respond to him in kind, and also it's just the right thing to do. We fear, we respect God. We have a weightiness approach to who he is, his character. And that has a claim on our response. So Paul would say, you were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. This grace that seems so, so free to you came at a tremendous cost to the Son of God 
who died on your behalf so you could enter into that relationship. You could never do it. That's what grace is. But that grace then doesn't become a reason to abandon the God who saved you, but rather to serve him. And there's a sober reverence that comes when you recognize, you know, maybe somebody would lay down his life for a good person, but what about you? A sinner such as you, such as me? Greater love has no man than this. He lays down his life for me. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And that has a claim on me not to treat lightly the things of God. But rather to treat them with reverence. You know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, which we referenced before too, Solomon, who was wealthy and intelligent beyond all of our imaginations, says at the very end, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and love his commands. That's the whole duty of man. You want to boil it all down? Fear God. Obey his commands. That is your duty. And it's not just a duty then. I think the grace piece of it translates into delight. They're both there. We delight in God's law, but then we have a duty as well. A claim in our obedience because he has pursued us and bought us with a price. And then Joshua goes on. And this is, this is actually doesn't seem like a very good... Uh, you know, preaching approach, I suppose, for these days either. Because here's a bunch of people saying, yeah, we'll serve God. We can have an altar call, right? Hey, you guys in? You choose today? Come on up here. And everybody's getting ready to go and say, wait, 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 wait. This is what Joshua says next to them because they're all in. He says, you know what? You're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you, after which, after he's been good to you. Wouldn't it be great if we just stopped the message before this? But here's the text, the biblical text coming to us. He says, there's a cost involved in this. Don't, don't rush up here too quickly. Because, we, because there is a cost involved in saying yes to this God. He's going to demand everything from you. Now, we know that's good, right? That there's a cost that comes along with serving God. It's hard, but it's worth it. This isn't just the end of the story. We know the, the, the bigger picture of it is there's all kinds of sacrifice. Die to yourself. Don't stop serving your self-interests. But that's the only way really to gain your life is to lose it in this kind of way. But it's hard. Don't jump up too quickly. This is what a lot of people tell individuals who want to become pastors or in ministry. You better not. Don't do it. It's not what you think it is. You know, you're, it, don't do it. But, but I'm compelled by God. I have to do it. No. Because there's a bear. It's not what you, it's hard. It's difficult. There's pain and sorrow and heartache. And I don't know how many of you have been disillusioned with the church in general. Don't do it. Don't go to church. Don't become a Christian. Don't do it. It's too much pain and heartache. And there's a barrier there because you, you crash through that barrier and say, 
I know the church is ugly, but the Savior's beautiful. I can't do anything but pursue him. I'm crashing through the barriers. This is what God's called me to do. This is the line I've drawn in the sand. I'm going to serve this God no matter how hard or disillusioned I get. I'm in. All in. That's where we started with Joshua. All in. And yes, it's a mess. That's the very place where grace is most clearly dis displayed. Where stories of grace walking around. Broken people. Crooked vessels. Racists. Homophobes. Selfish. Judging critical individuals. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. But for the grace of God go I, how quickly do we say that? Do you really believe it? You know, we had this men's thing yesterday. I think it was Pete who was saying, I don't even see Pete. I saw Pete earlier. Pete, are you here, Pete? He's gone. <laughs> Shout out to Pete. It was just talking about how sometimes he can't sing some of the songs because he doesn't know if he really believes it. And just even preparing for this too, and one of the commentators was talking about how some hymns, he just can't sing those words. I surrender all. You know, for the sensitive soul, you're like, I know there's an asterisk attached to that. There's a little wink, wink. You know, I surrender all as long as my 401k goes up. As long as I'm not threatened by somebody who might hone in on my security. And doesn't God grace, God's grace meet us in that? I mean, I don't think I could sing any of these songs if it weren't for the grace of God to understand the posture of my heart as the intent and the aim is faithfulness. But I know I'm probably going to fall short. In fact, I know I will. It's just a matter of when and what do I do with that at that point. And I think there's a hint of what we do with it next at the very end. Because we see this renewal of the covenant again on that day. In verses 25 through 31, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. Shechem was a place where God had called Abram 600 years ago. And now they're doing this covenant we talked about. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. He took a, a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. And we started with stones at the beginning and here we're ending with another, a, a physical demonstration of their commitment. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. And Joshua sent the people away, each to his own inheritance. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah, Sarah, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. They aimed toward faithfulness to the end of their days. And one of the ways they were able to achieve that is through this sense of continual recommitment to the things of God. There's a lot of covenant renewal ceremonies. Have you noticed that? If you've been with us through Joshua, covenant, renew the covenant, sign of the covenant. Hey, let's have another covenant renewal ceremony. They're doing it over and over, and here they do it again with physical demonstrations of their commitment to it. We're renewing our commitment 
to God. That's some of what we're doing even as we gather for corporate worship and certainly as we practice and observe the Lord's Supper. A tangible reminder that God has sent a sacrifice sufficient for us and that we are recommitting to him. If you're not in, don't take this supper. Don't do it. You're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. This is for those who say, I'm serving God. It's for me and my family. We choose the Lord. This repeated covenant then, it's a little bit like what we've said before too, this kind of cycle of what we call the believing life. Repent, believe, and obey. Repent, believe, and obey. You repent. It's common in the Christian life to recognize our shortcomings and articulate them, confess them, repent. But then you have to believe that there is a sufficient sacrifice, that Christ covers you, that his payment was sufficient. And the reason you do that is so that you can now obey. You aim towards obedience, repent, believe, obey, repent. It's like this this three-step gospel dance, a waltz for the rest of your life. Repent, believe, obey, repent, believe, obey. This seems to be what Joshua is saying too as he renews the covenant. Here they are, and when you go against it, what's your response? The only hope that you have against all those things coming down against you is to be honest about it. And then God provides a sacrifice where he's poured out those curses in the person of Christ. So that, Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're not under the heavy hand of God and the fear of judgment and fire because Christ himself has undergone that. He is the only one who is truly faithful to the end. And as great of a leader as Joshua was, he breathes his last at 110, and he needs the same sacrifice you and I need that was offered in the person of Christ. And so when you close the book of Joshua, and as we've looked at this, I hope you feel a sense of desire to say, I'm going to choose the Lord. Here are the other options. You're going to serve somebody. You're going to worship something. And you get to say, is it going to be the God who created everything and knows you intimately, every hair on your head, every thought that you have? And because of Christ, if you're in him, is for you or some other God. And and perhaps you lack the wisdom right now to be able to say the choice is obvious. I hope, though, when you keep trying out those other gods that are no gods at all, you'll come to a point where you say, the only satisfaction I can find is the one who created me. And here he is in the Gospels, in the person of Christ. And when it means to walk in that kingdom, we're going to be exploring in August. We're going to go right through the Sermon on the Mount. Because what it looks like to walk with this God is very different than serving other gods. And I think it's going to be very challenging for me to re-examine what that means with life in God's kingdom. Between now and then, uh, I'm going to be taking July off and kind of refreshing, hopefully, uh, time of just giving some other people a chance to serve in this way and our, our family will step away and get some, so a little bit of uh, time, time off. 
Next week, Ashish Pushkaran is preaching. He used to um, be a, a part of our, our staff and leads Partners India. The following week, Delano Robinson, who's a pastor at Great Commission uh, Church, will be joining us. And then the third week, Eric Ulianto is speaking, and then finally Dave Tapie. So you're going to have great people to come and to offer God's word to you. And it's kind of open. I've told them just preach where you're led. So that's going to be exciting. We'll have different people leading music. So we're looking forward uh, to all of that. But just a, a heads up that that is what, what is to come.